church, we hope that uh, you're blessed today, for we are blessed that you are here. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, stand, let's open our Bibles to Psalms 61 for the reading of God's Word today. Psalm 61, and there we are. Psalm 61. And it says, Hear my cry of lamentation, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength before the enemy. Let me sojourn in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will add days to the king's life. His years will be from generation to generation. He will sit enthroned before God forever, appoint loving kindness and truth that they may guard him. So I will sing praise to your name forever as I pay my vows day by day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today, Lord. We just thank you for all of us who are here today. We thank you, Lord, for those who have been traveling and are here. We thank you, Lord, for those who are sick and have made it or doing better, Lord. We thank you for the answer of prayer. We thank you, Lord, for um, just your guidance, Lord, as as your people, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that... uh, um, you are sovereign, you are graceful, you are merciful, Lord, because without that, Lord, we would, there would be nothing but condemnation condemnation for us, Lord. But we thank you for what you've accomplished on the cross to save us, Lord, an undeserving gift for eternity. And, Lord, we can't wait till that day we can see you face to face. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Father, admittedly, um, we say to you that we are distracted by so many things in this world, the things that vie for our affections and draw our attention to the things that are not of you and help us to be people that are not of the world or living in the world and lured in by all its enticements. But Father, that we just center ourselves on you and all that you have for us, God. Your word to us is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is the thing that sustains us. It's sufficient for us in our life here lived in Christ. I pray for just your spirit to move in our hearts, God to bring about understanding, soften us, Lord, help us to understand what we read today from your word, and let it be of you and and not of man, and I would admit that I may say things wrong here, Father, I may have things here in my notes that are wrong, and that you would just please strike those things before they would even be said here today, and everything that is said. That would be to your glory, God, and that would advance your kingdom. Help us to be faithful to you, to the teaching of your word, and to the understanding of it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And please turn with me to the book of Mark. If you were not here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message on Mark chapter 1, particularly if you want a good understanding of the introduction uh, to the book of Mark, some of the context, the, the history, uh, background information, I think will be very helpful as we move forward in this book together. We're going to find ourselves in chapter 1, verse 4 today, and I'm going to read through verse 11. 
So you make your way there, and we'll read that here in just a moment. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And though we covered verse 4 last week, I'm going to include that in the reading today just for the sake of context. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." So Mark's teaching here particularly is centered around the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. And this is the one that we learned last week was who was prophesied both by Malachi some 400 years before and then also by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Christ and John introducing and being the forerunner to Christ. So John is clearly the one whom Isaiah and Malachi had foretold would come and prepare the way for the way, way with a capital W, that being Jesus Christ, who we know is the way and the truth and the life. So John was simply fulfilling the role that was divinely assigned to him. In preparing the way, he was preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what I want to look back on because we're going to be covering that more in depth today. The baptism that he preached was not just a physical act of being immersed in water and then coming up out of the water. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what are we supposed to take that to mean for us? So the baptism itself was not something that caused the repentance to happen. John was not dipping then into some magical waters that then suddenly when they came up out of the waters that they had been turned with a repentant heart to God, but rather it was something symbolic. It was a marker that was administered to those who were repentant. It identified them with the aspect of repentance. This word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. And the definition from Strong's Concordant would say this, a change of mind and thus of action consequence upon, consequent upon realization that one has sinned and that sin is wrong. So it means more than just having our mind changed about something. We can change our mind about something, but never change our heart's attitude and how we live out our lives. This is a repentance that is marked by something that is changed outwardly. Not merely a change of mind, but a complete heart and attitude change. The result is a military term, an about-face. Turning from the sin that holds us captive and in its bondage before we are saved, and then turning away from that, but to 
Christ, who is powerful to help us to overcome sin. He overcame the grave. We have a resurrection life by His power in us. This is that repentance, turning from that that we once lived and served, our sin, to now the one that we live and serve, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So in that repentance, this is what is symbolized in that baptism. Now the baptism of John was not itself for the forgiveness of sins. We see him use this term as well. But I want us to look at what Paul says about the baptism of John in the book of Acts. So turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Because there is a reference here to the baptism of John, this baptism of repentance. And then it's making a comparison to another baptism that John will also refer to in what we read in Mark chapter 1, which is that baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we see the marked difference between the two. But here in Acts 19, I'll begin in verse 1 and read through probably verse 4 or 5 here. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul here says that John baptized with this baptism of repentance. That's what we're reading about this morning in Mark chapter 1, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. And the him who was coming after John, we know, is Jesus And so as John baptized the Jews in this baptism of repentance, he was also, by inference here, telling them that this continually uh, continuance, or continuing to tell them that they must believe in Jesus, not the physical act of baptism. So he was baptizing this baptism of repentance, but he was telling them that this Jesus will bring something that is far more greater than I can bring to you. In verse 5 of Mark 1, he says, And all the country, or Mark writes, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So it is clear that many have heard John's message. They were now coming to be baptized by him. And it was a response to this good news that the Messiah was coming. This is what he was speaking into the wilderness, so to speak, that he was physically in and also the wilderness of people in their own hearts, having wandered into darkness and despair, not having heard anything from the prophets for 400 years. And now here was this word that was coming. It was being spoken into the wilderness, and it was their response that they were coming to John. They were coming because they recognized their sinfulness, and they wanted to be prepared for the Messiah who was to come. They knew who the Messiah was supposed to be and what he would do for them because prophecies foretold of everything that Jesus would be and what he would do. So being baptized wasn't necessarily a new thing to them. 
baptism was ongoing. It wasn't just a thing that Christians suddenly decided that we would do, but years before the coming of Christ, the Jews used baptism as a ritual cleansing, if you will, to bring in Gentile proselytes into the Jewish faith. So there was a mechanism by which they would bring Gentiles in to the Jewish faith, to the worship of the one true God, and they would do it by this ritualistic cleansing, which was a ceremonial act of taking one and baptizing them. So this existed long before Christ came and we started the ordinances of the church. So what John was telling them in doing this, this baptism that was once reserved for the Gentile proselytes, he's now administering to the Jews. He was telling them in a sense that just like the Gentiles, they needed to be cleansed too that we have all sinned, that we are all marked and stained by sin, and that this repentance that he is preaching, this confession of sins, is demonstrated in, in humility, that it required a humble response. Just because you were of the Jewish faith, that you were a Jew by heritage, didn't give you the right, suddenly, of salvation by your following of the rituals and the works and the ceremonies, and those things. And many believe this message that John was preaching. Many Jews came into this baptism of repentance because with a humble heart, they recognized that they too needed to be cleansed of their sin. And so they took part in the baptism that John performed here. They were demonstrating a recognition of their sin and their desire to be spiritually cleansed. They were on the level now of the Gentile proselytes. And with John's baptism, a person repented of sin and then was therefore ready to put their faith in Christ. It was a preparation, if you will. His baptism was a purification ceremony meant to ready the people's hearts to receive their Savior. So John baptizing people, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And this word for confess is a long Greek word, examalageo, and it means to confess. It means to profess. It can also mean to acknowledge something openly, but also openly and joyfully admitting or confessing to something. It can also mean to profess that one will do something, to promise, to agree, or to engage. This, of course, is just the definitions from the Greek concordance. But knowing one is a sinner... I think is the key to confession. Because if we don't know something about ourselves, how will we profess it? How will we verbalize that if it's not something that we realize about ourselves? So knowing that we are a sinner, I believe is really key here. Confessing their sins is what they were doing. If there is no cognizance or awareness of our sins, then how can we confess anything before a holy God? Or even before man for that matter. We have on several occasions uh, seen in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus, and his earthly ministry, where Jesus healed the blind. And I think that is a real living example for us of what it is to confess in a physical way that we have no way of seeing on our own. Spiritually, we are blind. Before our hearts are regenerated, that we are born again, we are blind in our sin. 
and we see the blind man that's healed um, in the account of John. John chapter 9, verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. We must realize that in our sin, we are spiritually blind, and we need the miraculous conversion of our heart to open our eyes to our sins so that we know we need to confess. In salvation, we have our spiritual eyes open, so to speak, that we are made aware of our sin. And then there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that goes along with that, that, that uh, calling upon us to admit and to confess that we have fallen short of the holy standard of God and we need the forgiveness that He offers through salvation in Jesus Christ. And not many of us here would say that we like to be confronted. I'm kind of a non-confrontational kind of guy. I don't like to be confronted. I don't like to confront. But we must have God confront us with our sin. We must be made aware of our sin so that we can then come into agreement with God about our sin and what our sin has caused. Realize that Christ has paid the penalty for that sin And that was the penalty that we deserved. We deserved God's wrath. We deserved punishment for that sin. We deserved eternity in hell apart from God. But God in Christ gave us this gift of grace that He would take that penalty for us. But we must realize that we're sinners and there is a penalty that comes about as a result of our sin. Hymn writer Isaac Watts would pin this in his hymn, Was it for sins that I had done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The forgiveness of sins comes through the confessing of our sin, and that we are sinners who need his salvation. In verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So John had a humble appearance about him. John was not attracting people because of his looks. He was not dressing in modern day attire. He wouldn't be one up here with uh, skinny jeans on and, and high-top Jordans, you know, preaching the Word. John was not about drawing attention to himself, but rather he was pointing to the one who deserved the attention, and that was Christ. His was a humble life, and he lived the life of a true prophet of God. In fact, John was much like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. In fact, some would say that he was like this manifestation of Elijah the prophet, even though he was different and prophesied. I wouldn't hold to that. But if you look at 2 Kings 1, 7 through 8, you see how his appearance aligns with that of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite, 
So Elijah, having much the same appearance as John the Baptist, this humbleness, not something that was indicative of a life of ease. They didn't have really good clothing. They did not eat gourmet food, but rather they were committed to the life that God had set before them. And they were walking in His will. Because a prophet was not a prophet because they wanted a life of ease. I challenge you to find that in the Old Testament, uh, what a prophet was. And so many want to claim to be prophets today. And I would just say, well, if you really want to be a prophet, really look and pattern your life after what a true prophet was like. The prophets were not in it because they wanted people to listen to or follow them, necessarily. Um, They did not preach popular feel-good messages that made people comfortable. They were in it because they had an obligation to tell the truth of God to the people, whether they would listen or not. And oftentimes the people wouldn't listen. They were rebellious in their sin, but yet they would still boldly call people unto repentance. And that is what John was doing here. Not drawing people to his outward attire, or what he ate, and saying, man, I would just like to be like that guy. He has it all. <laughs> well, he didn't. He, he had very little, but he was declaring the truth of God to the people, and that was that they were sinners. They needed to confess their sin, and there was one greater than he that was coming that had that power, that had that ability. And so in verse 7, <clears throat> Mark writes, And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Never did John claim to be the Messiah himself. He possessed a self-awareness, you know, that his place in all of this was in what God was bringing about, that he was the one that was to proclaim the way, speaking into the wilderness. He could have had a cultish kind of following, You know, he could have really taken advantage of the situation. Now these people are flocking to me. Now I'm going to turn this message around on them, and I'm going to, he's going to claim that he's the Messiah. I mean, he had the ability to do that because people were flocking to him in droves, and he could have let that power go to his head. But John preached Jesus. He didn't preach himself. He didn't draw attention to himself. He pointed to the one who had the ability to save, to the uttermost, the one who could cleanse the conscience. And his use of the phrase, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. We can look at ancient history. Now understand it's ancient history. It's, it's not necessarily found in scripture, but there's, it's cited in the Babylonian Talmud here that in John's time that the rabbis taught that a teacher might require just about anything of his followers, anything of his students, except to make them take off their sandals. That was something that they would never ask their students to do. That was a task that was reserved for the lowliest of slaves, to stoop down and grab hold of dirty feet. You were considered defiled, really, to touch someone's feet and to unstrap it for them. And so this is the understanding that John is is coming at it from, is that he's not even worthy to do this. To require this of a student was not even heard of. But John understood the great importance. He understood the worth of Christ 
in that it was levels above him, more than just a great teacher or prophet, but he was the son of God. And he wanted to contrast that in, in a very stark way so that the people would understand, don't be looking at me. Look to the one who is high and holy, who is God, this Jesus who I am preaching to you, the one who I am not worthy to stoop down and even untie his sandal. They would have really understood this and grasped this. And then John continues with his inferiority compared to that of Christ. In verse 8, when he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism had purpose, but it didn't possess salvation power. Just, I'm baptizing you with water. That's all this is. And it doesn't have any magical cleansing properties. It's not going to cause you to repent or to cause you to have a changed heart. But yet I know of one baptism that will, and it's a baptism that is coming. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then here in a little bit, the one who comes that with that power is entering the scene. But John's baptism, as we mentioned, it could demonstrate repentance but it could not truly cleanse one from their sin. It could not impart the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus would after His work on the cross was accomplished for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus had a far greater baptism, and that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's the baptism that John was putting emphasis on, and he was saying this is so much more important. This is of so much more value to you. And its value is extended into eternity. All I can do, I've got this water here. And if you have a repentant heart, we can symbolize that here. But one is coming with a far greater baptism. Now, I want to just pause here because before I attempt to expound on this next passage, I just want to insert a reminder to be a Berean. We usually do that at the beginning, but, you know, go to the Scriptures and source everything that I tell you that I've written into my notes into the Scriptures because there's a lot to be said about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there's a lot of confusion um, with some doctrines and how they try to get you to believe what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, and what I hope you know, to make clear here through Scripture what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. So also keep in mind that the work of salvation, it's profound, it's miraculous, and at the simplest level, it's easy to understand the gospel, but then to probe its depths that we're never going to exhaust the riches of it. We're never going to come to that uh, clear, full-on knowledge of everything that it entails because it is the work of God. And so I'm just a human, and I can explain things wrong, and I can insert confusion. So ground this in Scripture. Just, just a reminder that I want to insert here. So one can be water by baptized without being baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think that's, that's pretty clear. Water baptism, it doesn't save us. We have to have a change within. Now, I want us to look at John chapter 14 together. Here we see Jesus speaking to his disciples of the promised Holy Spirit to come. John chapter 14, and I'm going to begin in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, 
you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus, when he says he will dwell with you, the with is a Greek word para, and that means to stand beside or to be with someone in that sense of being beside them. And then he also uses the Greek word en, which is en, and Jesus will be in you. So this is how Jesus is not going to leave them. He's bringing the disciples comfort. Uh, Just before this, he talks about going and preparing a dwelling place for them because they're beginning to understand that Jesus is about to do something that is going to take him away from them, that he's going to be with the Father, and they are going to be left alone, they think. But Jesus is saying, I'm really not going to leave you alone because I am there with you, intertwined with the triune Godhead. The Holy Spirit will be with you, but then he is making a promise that the Holy Spirit will be in them as well, will be in them. But he must go to the Father first so that the Helper can come. So this is how Jesus is not going to leave them in the spiritual sense because there will be an indwelling of himself and the Father by the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And I'm sure they're probably, at this moment, they try to get their heads wrapped around this because I've been almost 50 years in this world, probably at least 30 of them have been trying to get my head fully wrapped around this supernatural work of God. But Jesus promised His Spirit would be in them in John 14. And He was already with them in a sense. Now, look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in John 14, he promised that the Spirit would be with them and in them, and here in Acts chapter 1, He is promising that the Holy Spirit will come upon them. There would be some form of outward manifestation. And the way I read this is that it would be an outward manifestation that the Spirit is indeed within them. Now, Christ would go to the Father. They would have to wait. And at the time of the Spirit's coming upon the Holy Spirit, that they would know. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the full realization of that. You know, fulfilled prophecy as well, that outward manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit within the apostles, that evidence that the promise of His power was at work in them. They were, the tongues of fire came, it was very symbolic, a visual um, representation of the Holy Spirit having come upon them. They were able to speak in other languages that the people around them of different uh, nationalities or tongues could understand. And it was drawing them to the message of the gospel. It was to be a sign for the unbelieving Jews. And that was already prophesied. And so I see the baptism of the Holy Spirit being salvation itself, God's salvation to us. John the Baptist is simply declaring what the Old Testament had already said. This would be something that the Jews would have known well So as John says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36 with me now, verse 25. 
Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Here's the promise of the Holy Spirit found in the Old Testament that Jesus is promising to his disciples the spirit that will be put within them that will cleanse their hearts, that will cleanse them on the inside. The heart of stone will be replaced with the heart of flesh. And this is what Christ would usher in. And John would speak of it and say it was going to happen, but Christ would affect it. Christ would bring the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, First Corinthians 12, verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul says here that all have been baptized by the Spirit. And to me, my interpretation of this is that all believers have received the baptism. And that's synonymous with salvation. And it's not a special experience for only a few. And this is where some will try to insert an experience or that you haven't been baptized in the Spirit to say that if you haven't performed a miracle, if you haven't spoken in this tongue of angels that you are not baptized in the Spirit, when the common thread throughout seems to be that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is God's work of salvation, that He is saving us and renewing us by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I would say that Acts 2, 1 through 4 was where the first time people were, were permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that evidence in an outward way was, was given as that sign that the church age had begun. Spirit baptism is the, re, is the reality, I think, for every believer, one who professes saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it is the miracle of God to change the sin-stained heart into a new life and to be born again. And I think Paul puts it, really well in Titus, I would say, (laughs) definitely explains it better than what I could. But this is where most of my evidence comes from as what is being baptized in the Holy Spirit in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here is the spiritual aspect of being baptized in the Spirit 
that God, in regenerating our heart, pours out upon us His Holy Spirit in the renewing, cleansing sense of the soul, and not outwardly. And here it's not uh, immediately when they, we were saved that we suddenly began to talk in this unknown tongue, or we began to externalize with, this, with miracles, but this is simply salvation, is what John is talking about in 1 John. He can only baptize you in this baptism with water that's kind of, uh, it's meaningful and that it symbolizes our repentance and that we need to confess our sins, but yet one is coming that will cleanse and baptize you with this Holy Spirit for the washing and regeneration and renewal of the inward man or the inward woman. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the work of the triune Godhead in saving the human soul and coming in to abide in them so that they can abide in Him. And that we have His power within us, at work within us, to sanctify us and to grow us more in our faith and in the knowledge of Christ. So I I had a lot to say about that, and there's so much more that we could say about the the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. But um, I just wanted to kind of give you a a brief teaching on baptism of the Holy Spirit and my thoughts on it. Um, But now let's come back to Mark chapter 1. And let's continue, verse 9. And in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So the one that John had been telling them about, had been preaching and making the way for has now come on the scene here. This is Jesus Christ. This is the one whose sandal straps, John said, I'm not worthy to even untie them. And this Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee coming to be baptized himself might seem like an odd thing to us here. Because on this side of the cross, we know this Jesus is the Son of God who is God. He is sinless. Why would he need to be baptized? Why would the one who is the Savior of the world, being baptized according to John's baptism, why would he even take part in that? Because he is a perfect Savior, and he did not need to repent of sins. He did not need this baptism for the forgiveness of sin, because he was the sin forgiver, right? (laughs) And he was the perfect one. And so my reading and my expounding on this is that this was an act of obedience to the sovereign plan of God. That Jesus would come and he would willingly submit to baptism. And if we think of baptism and the way we practice the ordinance here at Carlsbad Bible Church, is that it is not the act of salvation, it is not what saves you. God, by the washing of regeneration, um, repentance, confession, all those things that work by the triune Godhead in our hearts to restore us into a right relationship with Him, that our baptism here is simply observance that we have now died to our old self, died to the sin, and we are risen to a new life that is in Christ, and now we are found in Him. Romans chapter 6 is where we get a lot of our interpretation for how the baptism uh, symbolizes this. But here... What Jesus is doing and what what we do in in identifying with Christ, Christ is identifying with us as sinners in doing this. Why would the one who is the Savior of the world need to be baptized? It It was to show His willingness to identify with us. 
And yes, of course, he was sinless. He was without sin. But he was about to go and he was about to be tempted in the wilderness by Satan. That was, that's going to happen next Sunday. We're going to teach on that. And to identify us in our, our humanness, to show that he would be exposed to the same weaknesses because he was in human form, I think was necessary for that moment that God had already ordained from eternity past, that Jesus would come, he would identify with us, and before he would and go out into the wilderness to be tempted, he would show his humanity by taking part in this cleansing ritual. That the one who knew no sin, we know would become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I have a couple of commentary quotes here. I like the way they explain it, which is why I included it here, but keep in mind this is commentary and not really found in Scripture. One commentator notes here, Jesus' baptism by John takes on an added dimension when we consider that John was of the tribe of Levi and a direct descendant of Aaron. Luke specifies that both John's parents were of the Aaronic priestly line. One of the duties of the priests in the Old Testament was to present the sacrifices before the Lord. John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus could be seen as a priestly presentation of the ultimate sacrifice. John's words the day after the baptism have decidedly priestly air when he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think that was interesting when you think about the heritage of and, and the descendants from whom John the Baptist came from being of a ironic line and being the, a priest in a sense from that that line. Spurgeon uh, rightly said here, remember Christ was not a deified man, neither was he a humanized God. He was perfectly God and at the same time perfectly man. The baptism of the Lord Jesus demonstrated he was the kinsman redeemer who would identify with sinful men and women without implying that he himself was a sinner. And so we see this Jesus taking part in that identifying with us in in our humanness. In verse 10, When he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is a very powerful scene to show us this is absolutely, without a doubt, supernatural. If you walk outside and, and you see something like this happening and you try to explain it away, with uh, science or something like that, uh, you're going to have a really hard time doing that. <laughs> but this is something you think, I would like to be there to see that, but I would, I would probably be shaking in my boots to see something like this. But here they're beholding this scene, knowing that it's of God, that the realm of heaven is revealed as being torn open and then descending from this realm of God, the, the heavens, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down and descends upon the Son, and lights upon Him, and then the Father speaks. In just two verses, we have all this this happening here, that I can't imagine how I would try to summarize this and describe it. It would just be too mind-boggling. But the Holy Spirit coming, alighting on Jesus, Jesus the Son coming out of the waters, God speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And I think this is clear as day, just as that passage from Titus 3 was, that this is the Trinity at work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, very evident in just these two verses. And the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove is God's 
uh, anointing, uh, a demonstration of His anointing Christ's work. Like the inauguration of His earthly ministry occurring here with His baptism. And we know that anointing and even Jesus' spiritual name being the Christ, the Messiah, is a, a setting apart for a sacred work of God. And that God was supernaturally sanctioning His work at this moment. And it was symbolized for us in a very real way with the descending of the Holy Spirit, alighting on Jesus, and then God saying, this is my beloved Son. And along with that appointment comes the words of God to the Son. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And even though the text doesn't say it, this is clearly the voice of God, you know, coming from heaven, from the Father, speaking to God the Son. And the fact that God calls Jesus His Son, of course, I think indicates clearly that this is God the Father speaking. And God the Father, He loves God the Son, saying He is His beloved And that love of the Father, His favor of the Son is communicated then by God sending down the Holy Spirit to alight and to descend and land on the Son. And the word beloved carries a special preciousness to it. We aren't to see this word as being just a regular form of someone loving someone. And we can say that all all day saying that we love someone, but this is this spirit carries a special connotation. I think it means that the Son is especially loved by the Father. In Romans 1 7, because when we think about this, I think it's even more incredible about this truth is that believers are referred to as beloved of God. And in Romans 1 7, Paul writes to all who are beloved. It's the same Greek word that God is using to call his son beloved. It's a agapetas, not just agape, but agapetas. So to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is making that uh, particular statement directly to believers in Christ the beloved of God. And while it is true that God so loved the world, that he agape loves, but there is a special love reserved for those who believe in him through faith in Jesus Christ and who are baptized by the Holy Spirit, who are saved of God. We love our children differently than we love other people's children, right? I mean, we may say, okay, I I love your child this way, but there's some special connection about our own children that we love them differently. We especially love them. It's a sentiment that we typically just reserve for them. But it's an incomprehensible truth that, and it's there for us to see how amazing is God's love that we should be called the children of God, that we should be called His beloved, and that is only in Christ baptized by the Spirit of God so that we are placed in Christ, having no righteousness of our own that comes through effort or work on our part, but it is a righteousness of God that is imputed upon us through faith in Jesus Christ. And because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we become God's beloved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. (coughs) 
Father, we come to you thanking you for your word, the truth that you infuse in us. And by the presence of your Holy Spirit, I, help, I pray that you help us understand, that you help us to take away from this the things that we need to grow in and that we need to maybe um, study more. Father, that you would overcome my human frailties and that you would help these things to be understood in the way that you intended and not the way that maybe I tried to press. God, that you are sovereign over everything that we say and do and that you do the work in the heart that you are capable of, Lord. And I thank you for that supernatural work of saving us, of bringing us the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who was you incarnate to us and that you would then save us and wash us by the regeneration and renewal of your Holy Spirit. And some of it's just too hard to fully comprehend and, and articulate, but God, you make it so clear in your scriptures and help us to maybe come to this place where we, we know, Lord, either you have saved us or maybe we have not truly confessed our sins before you. Maybe we are not truly regenerate and not your child or called your beloved and maybe there was something in here that we took and that now we, we understand and you're pricking our human conscience to know that we are lost and we're perishing apart from you in our sin, but that you can save us when we cry to you for your mercy and put our faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, the one who was worthy to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I pray that you would just grow this in, in us, Lord, the knowledge of it. Help us to advance your kingdom and to be obedient to you and to show our love through that obedience. Pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.